You're listening to The Cultured Podcast, a weekly conversation hosted by me, Michelle Corey, that breaks down the barriers surrounding art, theater, travel, and more to serve a digestible dose of culture for all. beloved cultured crew. We are here for another week of the cultured podcast and I'm especially excited today because we're going to be introducing our very first photographer to the show. We have Matthew Terrell. He is an Atlanta-based photographer who specializes in double exposure. So I'm really excited to dig into what double exposure is, how he does it, and the very interesting vintage tools he uses. But first, and of course, we've got to take a look at what's inspiring me this week. And as always, I want to encourage you all to share what's inspiring you via all the social channels or by leaving comments on culturedpodcast.com. I'm going to start picking uh, different inspirations from our cultured crew and sharing them uh, on different episodes. So definitely share with me what has your gears grinding and your heart aflutter. This week for me, it's actually community festivals. I went to a festival yesterday and actually ran into our guest for today at the festival. And I've been working very, very hard and taking a day to be amongst my community members, to see this little parade float by with all the different marching bands and people who just love their neighbors was really inspiring. It also made me feel very at peace and at ease and grounded and bumping into different artists' friends who were selling their wares in tents or just, you know, playing music on little stages. It made me feel really happy. So everybody who has the thankless job of organizing community festivals, I know it's really rough, but I want to thank you. I see you and I'm very inspired by your work. So yay, festivals! All right, so without further ado, we have Matt Terrell on the show today. I cannot wait for you guys to hear his incredible perspective on the world around him. Welcome to the show, Matt. Tell us a little bit about yourself. My name is Matthew Terrell. I'm an artist and a writer based in the fine city of Atlanta, Georgia. My art is mostly photography. Uh, and my photography is film-based. Remember those 35-millimeter cartridges of film that you put in the cameras and you had to take to Walgreens? Well, I'm still <laughs> using that. Uh, I also do some uh, public work. I've had uh, a sculpture at the National Center for Civil and Human Rights, and I have a work on the Beltline right now. I'm also a writer, published in Vice, Huffington Post, Burnaway, Creative Loafing, Arts ATL, just a bunch of other places. Whoa. So I'm constantly hustling. When there's a project that I, I see in my mind, I, I bring it to fruition however I, I can. I love that. I mean, you, you embody this term that I had to kind of apply to myself, which is hyper-creative. It's just this idea of I'm a person who needs to express, and I express in whichever way feels naturally to me in that moment. And it can change from moment to moment. Um, but in particular, you do a lot, but we want to focus today on your photography. It is double exposure photography. So why don't you tell us a little bit about what that means? So I take uh, 35-millimeter rolls of film, and I put them into my camera, which is a Pentax K1000, which was the world's number one selling uh, camera ever. 
Um, it's my mine's for like an original 1979 model. Still works. I've had it since I was 16, which is I, I guess that's 14, 15 years now. Um, <laughs> so I take the full roll of film. Usually I am just like walking out, you know, through San Francisco or Atlanta or Barcelona, and just whatever I see. If I see something really interesting, you know, something that's very well lit or something that's very graphic or just something that's very beautiful, I take a picture of it. Uh, and then I wind the film all the way back up and I put it back into the camera and I expose it again, double exposing uh, the film. And the way I do it, I don't have the frames line up completely. So what I create is like this one long continuous image that I can then print into what I've I've been pretty small scale this far and doing like 12 inch by about six feet long strips of film. I don't plan them. A lot of people ask me like, oh, do you know frame one was this, frame two is this. I let it all sort of happen by chance. Yeah. I love that. Um, Six feet. What did you say? About six feet long is my biggest one thus far. What I want to get up to is um, approximately four feet tall by 50 feet long. I'm having a show in Steamboat Springs, Colorado later this year, and I've measured the walls of the space I'm going to be in, and um, 50 feet wrapping around the entire room. As you can imagine, I'm not super concerned about selling the work because not a lot of people have room for a 50-foot piece of work. I'm just concerned with making the work right now. That's beautiful. I, that's why I was like, I love that six feet is small scale to you. But now I understand you have way bigger dreams in mind, which is awesome. Well, with the um, the first round when I made it six foot, it was a lot of testing to see, like, how do you get this to go around a corner or mm-hmm. uh, into a, a corner? How do you make it go up a wall? How does it look in different lighting as you're, like, walking around it? Um, So it was good to see that on the small scale and work my way up to something larger. Let's go back, all the way back to 14-year-old Matt. What came first, the love of photography or the Pentax? You know, that is a good question. When I was like in middle school, I was the photographer on school newspaper and school yearbook. And so I was always taking pictures. And then I just realized like, you know, I need to step up my game here. <laughs> and I, I bought that that Pentax on eBay. It was the same model my mom had had <laughs> when she was like first married uh, in the 80s. For me, photography is just sort of like a, a black hole of time and money that I like to, you know, <laughs> sink into. I've, I'm constantly buying just, you know, new equipment and new toys to play with. For me, it's just like a really fun outlet to express myself and to try something new. What I'm really interested in as a photographer is trying to come up with a new way of looking. This is, this is a very common phrase that you hear in photography is a new way of looking. And so for me, when I create these long strips of photos, it's really sort of a cross between a photograph and a movie. They actually kind of look like film strips. And they actually play out with a narrative, you know, from one end to the other. And for me, that is uh, my new way of looking because it's... It's expressive of the way I remember things because I I remember things in oftentimes a non-linear way where things start to like collapse. It's like, well, did that happen first or did that happen next? And I sort of have these pastiches in my mind. And so it's an expression of, you know, the way I remember my trip to Barcelona uh, where, you know, I remember seeing this building and the sign and the street sweeper and it just sort of all collapses into one beautiful mass. Right. Overlaps of images and feelings and memories and... And maybe even sometimes we skew those memories and turn them into fantasy. A lot of times we do that, especially with our childhood. And so it becomes this amalgamation of reality, fantasy, and there's just this blur. And and your work does feel very 
intimate, but also fantastical in a way. There's something ethereal about it because of the double exposure. So let's talk a little bit about the subject matter yes. of a lot of your work. So what do you focus on? What inspires you the most? When I'm out walking and taking pictures, I sort of have a lot of rules that I'm following. The first one is everything gets one picture. <laughs> so, you know, if I see a really beautiful, like, flower display uh, at a florist outside of their store, I think, like, okay, well, I only get one picture here. I have to make it as beautiful as possible. And so, you know, I, I look around it, and I think, like, what is my best angle? Sometimes I put on a different lens. So I want to get a little bit closer to it. And since it's a film photo, I have to make sure the lighting is right, the f-stop's right, the uh, timing is right. And then I get that one photo. Oftentimes for me, I would say my top inspiration is light. What I love about going to San Francisco is the light is different there. It's so golden and beautiful. I was there on um, the longest day of the year uh, this past year, and I was just like, oh, my goddess, the light is so beautiful. It's just pouring in over the mountains, illuminating everything, look golden. Uh, and what so, kinds of photos did you take during that day? <laughs> <laughs> I was there for uh, Gay Pride, and so it was uh -huh. a lot of rainbow photos. Um, I also like to do uh, photos of very graphic things. Storefront windows are oftentimes really great for that reason. You know, you've got like a display of like jock straps and rainbow <laughs> flags, and there's teddy bears, and it's just a really interesting, crazy like mix. A fun shop. Yes, yeah, yeah. <laughs> there's a lot of that in San Francisco. <laughs> you know, when you look at my work, there's not a lot of people in it. And that's because oftentimes what I'm interested in doing with my photography is subtracting any element that can give away when it was taken. So if you have like, you know, a shirt that says like Gap 2017 or Old Navy summer, uh, summer 2016, I don't like that in my photo. And so I always try and crop that out. People who look modern, modern cars, modern signage, I usually try and crop that out. But if I do see someone who maybe like looks kind of vintage or it's like, um, like a hot rod car, like an old Corvette or something, I'll definitely take a picture of that. I love like a store that's been there since like the 70s and they haven't changed the storefront and that entire time. So I like to take pictures of those sorts of timeless things. So it, it often looks like a memory in that way when you sort of eliminate all those factors that can kind of give away when a thing was. Right. So there's a sense of nostalgia from your tools to your vision. Yes. And why do you think that appeals to you? That is a good question. I I think it's really fun as a contemporary photographer to be able to create something that looks vintage. And I'm also using a vintage tool, which is film. I think that it really just lends itself to this aesthetic. And, you know, I, I want my viewers to be able to look at my work and think that it could have happened at any time in any place. You know, when I'm in a place like San Francisco or Barcelona, it's oftentimes you can tell exactly where it is. But sometimes in a, I'm in a place like Atlanta and you can make Atlanta into any place, anywhere. Yeah. Which is really a beautiful thing to do in my photography. Another thing I like to do is I play this game where I have all these color filters, a rainbow of color filters, and I randomly pull them out one by one. <laughs> uh, and I'm like, all right, blue. Uh, and then I just like walk around like holding the filter up through my eye. I'm like, all right, what's going to look really, really great blue here? <laughs> and then when I find it, I put it on my camera and I take a picture of that and I move that filter to the next pocket and I move to the next filter. And I just cycle through moving them from one pocket to the other. And then I double expose that roll Sometimes with more filters, more colors, sometimes without them. But it gives like a very psychedelic uh, 
colorful rain- rainbow effect, which is very, very fun. It really does feel like you see the world in a, a sense of double exposure. <laughs> you know, you see the world in this, in these two different ways. It's like the world you're in and the world that you can make it. And then you translate that to your art. So what I want to know is, is it really difficult to do double exposure? Like, do you have to be very careful about rolling up the film again and putting it back in the camera? Because it could, I mean, when it gets exposed to light, then it's ruined. So if I've taken a roll of film the first time, I roll it up and I can usually feel or hear when it's out of the sprockets but not fully rolled up into the film. And that's the point where I, like, open the camera back up and put it back in. But sometimes I make the mistake and I roll it all the way back up into the canister. And so at that point, what I do is if I have a jacket on, um, I'll take off the jacket and then put it over my hands. And then so essentially the film canister is covered up in the dark. And then I like peel open the canister and pull the film out and then put the canister back together. Usually there are some light leaks in there, which kind of turn out really cool. Uh, and that that's really how I do the double exposure. When it comes to like getting it right... This is where it's really important not to take more than one photo of something, because if you're thinking of, you know, if I'm going to print a long strip of something, I don't want like four photos in a row of the same building facade, because that's just not going to be very dynamic and interesting. It's also very important to keep what would be called my f-stop. F-stop is your aperture. It's like how big or how small the opening is for the iris of the camera. You want to keep that in between about like 8 and 16 Um, So your aperture goes from like 2.8 all the way up to 22 on a standard camera. And modern cameras, digital cameras still have apertures like this. But in terms of double exposure, what I found through trial and error is that the more wide open the aperture is, so something like 5.6 is a very, very wide open aperture, the more powerful that final image will be. And so let's say for the first round, I took something with a really small aperture. It's like a pinhole. And then the next round, it took something with a very wide open aperture. All I will see is the wide open picture. And so I really want like a balance between the two images. So I really try and get the aperture between 8 and 16. And when I do that and, the, you know, it's well lit and you've got light and dark places and you have things that are very graphic, the images start to like collapse upon each other. And then you've got like buildings and flowers and you've got trees growing out of humans' heads and you've got (laughs) dogs like upside down in clouds and all sorts of wonderful, crazy, fantastical things where uh, it really does look like a surreal dream world. That is so fascinating. How cool. So speaking a little bit about different art forms, you talked a little bit about the sculpture that you did for the Center for Civil and Human Rights. Tell us a little bit about what that was. So I had a sculpture called Atlanta's HIV Positive Population Now, which used CDC data to chart HIV growth in metropolitan Atlanta. I went out there every week for about four months, and I updated the number This was about me thinking of art as a way to solve a problem. So uh, I went to art school, and one of the things that we learn in art school is that art is a problem-solving process. It's a way where you can sort of look at the big picture of an issue and think like, okay, where can I come in creatively and sort of like bend the boundaries uh, and solve, you know, a specific problem? So the specific problem that I saw for this project was – There's a very small community who really knows and understands HIV, and there's a much larger community who perhaps they don't really understand it, they're not part of the conversation, uh, but they could affect positive change. I'm thinking about politicians, business leaders, doctors, lawyers, a lot of people who may never know anybody who's HIV positive, they may not know the scope of the problem, Um, telling them, like, go get tested is not 
a good message for them because they're not at risk, but they could enact legislation, they could enact new policies in hospitals, all sorts of things to help improve the problems of HIV in our community. And so that was my problem. And I thought like, well, how do I engage them? And I said, well, why don't we just show the raw number and let's change the number every single week. So I'm imagining like, you know, somebody who's going to drive by the sculpture every week on their way to work, they're going to see it climb and climb and climb every single week. And they'll think like, this is a real problem. Like, what can I do about this? And so that was that project. I'm always thinking, how can I communicate? How can I solve a problem through my work? And why HIV? Why was that something that you think you needed to address? Well, you know, HIV is an epidemic in Atlanta. You know, as a gay man, I'm on PrEP. I know, which is an HIV prevention medicine that you take, it's a pill once a day. And I know a lot about it. I also realized that there are a lot of people who have power and who have purse strings but are not engaged. And so that was my vision. I I really saw that a lot of artists dealing with HIV in their work, they were speaking to people who are already engaged with the issue. Uh, People who are at risk, which is really great. You need to make sure that people get tested. But, you know, this was my, my creative aha moment of realizing like, oh, there's this larger community that we can engage here. Someone needs to do it. And I was like, well, I'll do it. Mm-hmm. That's amazing. And it was a pyramid, right? It was a pyramidal shape. Why did you choose that? That was a site limitation. Mm. What, what's really fun about being an artist is with every single project, you know, you go in with the idea of, well, I, what I want is I want a digital display that's going to be mounted on the side of a building and it's perpetually updated. That was my original thought for that project. And we went to the site and they presented me the site that was perfect. It was beautiful. It had no access to power <laughs> at all. Oh my God. So the digital display part had to be scrapped. And I was like, okay, we have to have a marquee and I have to come out here and update it. Uh, you know, originally I thought this is going to be mounted on the side of a building pretty high up above human level. And they're like, no, you're going to have to build a sculpture. And we can't like put ropes off. People may come up to it and like you have to make sure people can't climb on it. And that's why <laughs> oh, it's a that's pyramid. Why that's why. That's so- brilliant. <laughs> <laughs> That's it was really just site limitations that made it that final project. I think it's really important as an artist to not just an artist but anybody really to never go into a project saying, well the final product has to absolutely be this one thing. Mm-hmm. I think it's really important to be very flexible and allow yourself to discover what the final product will be because if I had been really hard-headed and said, like, no, this has to be a digital display. It has to be mounted onto a building. That project would have never come to fruition. But allowing myself to think, like, okay, well, it'll be a marquee, and I'll just come out once a week, and I'll update it, and I I guess it'll be a sculpture, and I guess it's (laughs) going to be a pyramid so people can't climb on it. I think it made it a better project in the end. Yeah, you know, I agree with you, especially I find it so interesting that you started with this idea of allowing it to just update itself digitally, but there was this human, ongoing, kind of living component because you had to go every week and update it. And there's something really special about that, that you lose with the the digital component. You know, that actually turned out to be a major benefit because I got to have a lot of interactions with people. Um, I ran into somebody who came out there one day when I was changing the number and she said, oh, well, my pastor was talking about this and said to our entire congregation, you need to go see this work. Wow. I thought that was just really wonderful. And then I had conversations. I had another conversation with this other woman who said, 
my child was at a school in a high school in South Atlanta and they were doing a blood drive and they had to stop the blood drive because too many of the students were getting diagnosed with HIV. <gasps> and it's just like all these really fascinating conversations that I would not have had and would not have become aware of had there not been the human side of it. You know, changing the number when there's like high schoolers out there. Mm. Um, you know, getting on onto their bus after a tour at the center. Y- you can bet that they noticed me out there changing the number and they had a conversation about that on the bus ride back home. And so allowing myself to be flexible and to have the human part really helped that project. You know, I think what works for you so well, and it's a huge driving factor for your art, is this unattachment. You don't have an attachment to perfection. You don't have an attachment to any kind of firm ideal or vision. You just kind of allow yourself to flow in your current creative thought processes, yeah. which I think creates a better environment for expression anyway and creativity. I think uh, a lot of artists, including myself, have the issue that we impose these pressures of perfection upon ourselves. Like, oh my gosh, what if this doesn't come out how I think it's going to come out? You know, in my writing, I've learned how to start letting go and just saying, this is the piece that I want to write. I'm going to start writing these words that just came to mind. And soon 800 words come out that I'm like, wow, that's a cool story, (laughs) you know, and I could have never planned for it. So, you know, I think it's a balance of planning and flexibility, but mostly just allowing yourself to be. Perfection and control is a very hard thing to come to terms with as an artist. Um, What's really great when I do my double exposure photography, I know when I take that picture, what I see through the lens is going to get double exposed. So who knows what the final product's going to be? (laughs) And so I'm less caught up in let me make this the most absolutely perfect sterile photo. And I'm really focusing on, let me just enjoy taking this photo and express what I'm seeing. Uh, Let me capture that beauty without being so caught up in the end product. If your mind is on the final product, you are not in the moment. And you can only make good artwork if you are in the moment. Well put. That's beautiful. Okay, so uh, are there any photographers who inspire you in the world of double exposure? One of my favorite double exposure photographers is actually based in Atlanta, uh, Tierney Guerin. She creates these images of her family, of her kids, of her travels around the world. And it's very similar to mine in where it's almost like memories of these moments that are collapsing into these new images that are, I think, very expressive of the way at least I remember and probably she remembers these experiences. Another photographer, he's actually my mentor, And I really love his work. Arthur Tress is a gay photographer who has been in the game since like the 50s. (laughs) He's an awesome guy. I would describe his work as surreal photojournalism. Wow. So he goes out into the streets and is just trying to capture people in moments that are real and true, almost like you would see in a newspaper. But there's always some element to them that's somehow strange or surreal. I know that he does sometimes, sometimes he will set up a photo, but a lot of the times it's just him like being able to capture a specific moment in his, in his own eye. And he's actually given me so much good advice. He was the one that told me to start doing these long strips of photos. How did you meet him? 
I went to the library to pick up a book on Robert Maplethorpe, another photographer. And when I went to the library, that Maplethorpe book was not there. But out of place was an Arthur Tress book called uh, Wondrous Journey. And I was like, oh, okay, I'll just, I'll read this book instead. And I read it and I was like, oh, this is an amazing photographer. And I just had to contact him and I found his email uh, That's amazing. <laughs> I his email, emailed him. <laughs> then we started talking on the phone. And then Arthur just called me up one day. This was in 2013. And he said, Matthew, you have to come to San Francisco next week. <laughs> like, I, I've never been to California at this point. I'm like, what? I have to come to San Francisco? He's like, yes, you need to photograph the funeral of Jose Julio Saria. Uh, Jose Julio Saria was the first gay man to run for public office in America. He didn't win. He ran about 10 years before Harvey Milk ran and won. Oh, wow. But Jose Julio Saria started this international association of drag queens. <laughs> and amazing. so we were at Grace Cathedral, which is this huge cathedral in San Francisco, full of drag queens wearing like all black, you know, no skin showed, like black opera gloves, black full length gowns. They had to wear like towering wigs, veils covering their face, crowns. It was Looking better than I could ever (laughs) dream of looking at a funeral. It was just such an interesting experience. Being able to take these photos was really great. So do you... Do you happen to remember the moment that you connected with photography in a way that you were like, I I have to continue this passion? Yes. I remember the exact photograph that when I saw it come out, I, I, I was like, this is going beyond just a snapshot and this is art. Um, and surprisingly, uh, that was only maybe like five years ago. I've been taking photos since, I mean, I was like a little kid. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I'd never really thought like this is something that is part of my artistic practice. Wow. Um, until about five years ago. Um, and it was a photo of my friend Crying Callie, who's a drag queen. Uh, and I, the first round, I, I was taking photos of, of her and she like had this like um, – little going to grandma suitcase and like a heart-shaped balloon. (laughs) Uh, And I was like, oh, that's cute. Uh, And then I wound up the film. And the second round, I was taking pictures of fire dancers. Wow. Uh, I I don't even think that I realized that I was double exposing over this role of um, drag queen. And the photo came out, and it was Crying Callie with flames coming out of her head, out of (gasps) her huge wig. Uh, And I was just like, oh, my God goddess this is such an interesting photo this it really showed me the power of the double exposure process um wow and it was just so perfect and was really great I actually became really good friends with crying Callie and unrelated to my photo maybe related to it <laughs> um she became known for her fire performances no! later on where she would like do things where like fire would come out of her hands and her hair and i was like oh this is so perfect this was meant to be it was like a psychic photo yes yes <laughs> that's amazing it's like reading tea leaves absolutely I'm just so- gonna look at your photos from now on <laughs> So along the same lines, is there, I mean, encountering these people, taking their photos, you have to get to know them. As a photographer, you really have to break this barrier between the person and the camera, right? And that takes skill. But I'm sure you also get to know people in a fairly intimate way. So are there any interesting stories of people you photographed in the past? One of my favorite series that I've done, and it's actually the series that has been, I don't, I don't want to say stolen, but in the <laughs> most, um, was I did one called Becoming Violet Chachki, and I 
took a photograph of Violet Trotsky every step of the way of her putting on her makeup. So it's this perfect progression of going from uh, Jason all the way up to Violet. It was a long shoot. <laughs> I just remember, like, it was so hot in Violet's studio, and she was blaring the music. How was her face not melting? Violet is a professional. I, I can tell you that I have been on a photo shoot with Violet before, and it she's in full drag, which is already hot. Right. It's 100 degrees outside, and she's sweating, and she's like, Matthew Terrell, come here and blow the sweat off my face. <laughs> <laughs> and I like, go over there, and I'm like... <sighs> literally blowing the sweat off her face. I was like, can I not dab it? She's like, no, that'll ruin the makeup. (laughs) Yeah, be real, Matt. (laughs) Get it together. So a lot of your photographs do actually communicate your experience as a gay man in this world. They take a fairly intimate look at your life, too. You, You said that you don't often photograph people, but I've seen some incredibly beautiful works of yours that show these intimate moments between two men. So, um... Sometimes I do this a lot in San Francisco, actually. You know, I'm on Grinder or Scruff and <laughs> yeah. I, I find some some guy and he's like, I love your photos. And I say, like, well, you want to take some right now? And I just like walk over with my camera. Jürgen Teller is this great photographer from Germany. And he's got this great story of how he was going to take this photo of Bjork. And the photo he took of her is he like she came over to his house to take the photo and he just like snapped a photo of her as she like stepped in and like that was the moment. And so (laughs) as soon as like the the guy like comes to this door, like I am snapping a photo of him. And so you can really see the progression of like this is a stranger at this point and like me getting to know you and then the clothes come off. I, I will say that it's not necessarily erotic in the titillating pornographic sense because, you know, our bodies are collapsing into these other things, flowers and flags and all these other things I'm taking um, to where it's not really distinguishable as sort of like a, a pornographic image, but you know what's going on. Right. And again, this is sort of expressing the way I remember this. Like I remember walking over and I remember seeing the storefront that had a, a stormtrooper out front and taking a picture of that. And then I walk to this guy and then I, he comes to the gate and I take a picture of that. And then there's a picture of the cat that's sitting on the windowsill. And it's all collapsing into one because that's the way I remember it. And then there's these flashes of of like chest hair and smiles and butts and all sorts of great things. Yeah, yeah. It's like an allusion to those moments. Yes. Yeah, that's amazing. So where can people find your work? You can go to my website. It's just memat.com. Uh, and if you also look at Matthew Terrell, you'll find me on Huffington Post and Vice and Local to Atlanta on Burn Away Magazine. All right. Well, thank you so much. This was so interesting. Thank you for being on the show today. I really appreciate it. Thank you for having me. Huggies and kissies to Matt Terrell. Thank you again for being on the show. And you guys know that you can visit the show notes for the episode at culturedpodcast.com. Like I mentioned, there's going to be a lot of little tidbits in there, good links and photos so that you can get to know Matt on a deeper level and his work, of course. And you'll obviously be able to learn more about him and all the different art forms that he encompasses. And don't forget to check out those other photographers that he mentioned. I'll also link to them on the show notes page, and that'll allow you to start digging a little bit deeper into the world of double exposure photography. As always, y'all, keep it classy, keep it curious, keep it cultured. I'm Michelle Corey. Sean Powers is our producer. David Markowitz is our executive producer. 
The Cultured Podcast is a production of Zero Mile Media, made with love in Atlanta. You can listen to The Cultured Podcast on culturedpodcast.com, Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Stitcher, Pocket Casts, and anywhere podcasts are found. Thank you.